Well, good morning, everyone. We have a great uh, morning of things to celebrate, and uh, so excited about uh, baptisms in a little while and senior recognition uh, as we pray for those uh, students graduating from high school and heading into the, the real world as if they weren't already there, right? Um, I did want to, as we begin, take just a few moments to talk to you a little bit about the, the deacon ministry here at, at Melanie Park, and I want to begin by expressing my sincere appreciation for the men who currently faithfully serve in this role. In case you don't know, uh, these men include Glenn Frick, um, Tom Wise, Michael Etheridge, and Brad Hodge. Uh, These four guys have been very faithful to the ministry uh, as deacons and uh, as elders. And on behalf of the elders, we want to thank them for for their partnership in, in that ministry. Uh, these men have been serving for about three years, and when we uh, asked them and established the deacon ministry at Melanie Park, we gave them three areas of focus that are a part of kind of their commission, if you will. The first one is to care for the physical and material needs in our body, specifically uh, the widows, the elderly, uh, single parents, the sick and disabled. We also asked them Secondly, to to care for those who can't be here as a part of when we come together as a church body, who are homebound for some reason, just to touch base with them and make sure that that connection remains. And and then lastly, we've asked them to to manage the the distribution of financial and material uh, needs to um, uh, those in our church family. When these men were put in place, we told them, and, and we will continue to speak this, and that is, to remind them, your job is not to meet all these needs. Uh, your job is to ensure that these needs are being met uh, by the body that is called to do that. Uh, we really want to avoid the misconception that if there's a need like I've described that comes up in the body that somebody needs to call the deacons. Uh, that's not the way it works in the body of Christ. The, the body is fully equipped to care for the body. The deacons are the oversight to ensure that there is good biblical guidance and spiritual direction to how those needs are being met within the body by those who are connected to those who uh, have that need. The deacons have a spiritual responsibility, not an administrative duty. Their job is to protect the integrity of the love that we have for one another and to do that in all spiritual wisdom. Although the deacons have been very faithful to what we've asked them to do. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I wanted you to pray for this ministry and for these men. And I'm going to ask you to continue to do that, but I want to add something to it this morning. Uh, As elders, we feel like it would be of value to have more men added to this team to serve this purpose in our church. And so we would ask you to pray, but also if there are men that you feel are qualified to serve in this capacity. And as we've talked about with elders, these are men who are already doing what the deacons do, as I've described to you. They're they're already caring for people. They're already connected with one another in the church family. If you see men who are doing that and you feel like they would be qualified to serve, we want to hear from you. We want to know about those men so that we can begin to to pursue them. Or, Or you may be one of those men. That's okay, too. If you have a desire, if this is something God's put on your heart and you would be interested in doing that, we want you to come talk to us. And tell us about that desire and let us walk through what it means to to be a deacon here at Melanie Park. So 
it's an important part of what we do as a church family, and we just want to invite you to be a part of that process with us as, as more men serve in that capacity. So if you would, please uh, commit to praying for that. Um, kind of with that in mind, it fits really nicely into what we'll be looking at this morning in our passage, because the Philippian church really was a church who were ministers of mercy. They had a unique compassion, and Paul is on the receiving end of that compassion, which we will see uh, very clearly displayed in in our passage this morning. So if you would go ahead and turn to uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. And let's look at this passage together. Before I do, let me pray for our time. God, we are grateful for the chance to be together as as a church family, and especially on days like today where there is so much to celebrate uh, as people have made uh, that commitment of faith in response to your initiative in their life to be a child of God. Uh, May we not grow mundane in that uh, beautiful ceremony, that that it would be uh, as much of a celebration here on earth as it is in heaven, um, as you and the angels rejoice in the testimony of those who have chosen to follow you. Um, Father, we also pray that as the seniors uh, speak to those things that they will be pursuing next, that we will be reminded of the commitment that we made for some of them when they were infants, uh, to raise them and be a part of a church family that helps guide them in a direction that honors you. May we reaffirm that commitment even now for them and for those behind them Uh, that someday we'll stand up here and give the same testimony. And most importantly, Father, as we enter your word, uh, we recognize that we have no ability to understand. We do not have the wisdom apart from you. Uh, We cannot uh, fulfill what you desire without your spirit moving first in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. So we invite you uh, to be... uh, part of what we do this morning by really invading this space, um, softening our hearts, opening our ears and eyes that we may serve you more. We pray this in your name. Amen. Verse 10, Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now let me remind you, as we enter into the passage this morning, that Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And as a prisoner under house arrest, he is completely dependent upon others to meet his basic needs. You see, he was still responsible to pay for the house in which he was held prisoner to pay for that rent. And not only that, while he was there, he had to pay for the food that he would need to eat. And everything that he needed to sustain life was his responsibility but the challenge is he couldn't leave that house to earn that income to achieve that purpose he really was dependent upon others to meet his basic needs but here's something i found interesting and 
and you can check me on this, but I looked hard, and I could not find a place in Scripture where Paul ever asked for money to meet his personal needs. I don't find any evidence here or even in any other place where he solicited funds in support of his own ministry. Now, we know that he did collect funds for other churches, didn't he? He went around from church to church, and there was this collection that he gathered for the church in Jerusalem specifically. But as far as I can tell, we have no indication that he ever requested money for things that he believed God had called him to do. Now, in no way am I saying that that is wrong. (laughs) But the reason I bring it up, because I believe it makes it very clear to us that if the Philippian church was to know what Paul's needs were, they were going to have to find out on their own. In other words, they were going to have to care enough to know. They couldn't do like we often do, where we tell people, hey, we're going to be praying for you. If you ever need anything, you just let us know. Since Paul wasn't announcing it, those who cared about the apostle had to make an effort to learn of his condition. And keep in mind, they couldn't check Paul's status on Facebook, could they? <laughs> nope. They, they didn't get any updates via email or anything like that. Not even a phone call. wasn't possible. In fact, Paul was 800 miles away from the Philippian church. You'll remember that was a journey that would have taken months. And so if the Philippian church was going to find out about Paul's needs... It was going to cost them something, both physically and financially. And don't forget, the Philippian church was not a wealthy church. In fact, it was a poor church. And we know that because of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, which includes the Philippian church. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Their extreme poverty overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity. (laughs) So the Philippians weren't poor. They were extremely poor. And not only that, they were persecuted. We know that from what we've read in our letter thus far when he says in chapter 2, verse 28 of Philippians, he says, Paul uh, encourages this, said, strive together for the faith of the gospel. In no way be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but what? To also suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. That conflict is the conflict of persecution. The Philippian church was a poor church. The Philippian church was a persecuted church. But none of these things inhibited them from being a compassionate church. I think if we were honest, we would have probably given them a pass, wouldn't we? You guys have enough on your plate. Don't worry about these other needs. But their compassion compelled them 
to action. It was a sacrifice of love and a demonstration of their devotion to following the example of Christ, ultimately, who was also poor, who too was rich in mercy because of his great love. And I believe that is what gave Paul the joy from the Philippian church. He's not excited because he sent them, they sent him money. Was it an encouragement? Sure it was. I believe that it was an encouragement to him. But his joy was in the giver much more than it was in the gift. His joy was the overwhelming gratitude when Epaphroditus knocked on his door. And Paul answers the door and he says, it's good to see you, brother. It is good to see you. On behalf of the Philippian church, we just want you to know how much we love you. And how much we stand with you as you take the good news of the gospel of which we are recipients to the uttermost parts of the world. We share our gift because we are rich in his mercy. We love you, brother. Paul didn't ask. They had to care enough to know. They had every reason to be exempt from giving, but their compassion compelled them to action. Paul rejoiced in the sacrifice of their love and, more importantly, the devotion that they had to following Jesus Christ. And I think this passage gives us a unique perspective into the mind of Paul. In fact, I think it reveals to us, in some ways, the secret to his motivation to remain silent about his personal needs. He basically says in verse 11, I don't ask for help because I don't perceive a need. Look at verse 11 again. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, first of all, I think we need to understand that that Paul didn't just wake up one morning and understand and have this perspective. He tells us very very clearly that he has learned to be content. And the, the lesson of contentment, as he shares with us, is not isolated only to times of need. Paul says, I gained this perspective in moments of poverty as well as seasons of prosperity. When I was hungry and when I was filled, when there was a crisis of need and when there was an abundance. It's important to understand that for Paul, the classroom of contentment was found in circumstances not that he invited, but those that he believed God had prepared beforehand that he would walk in them. In other words, Paul did not choose poverty. He didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going, not going to work today because I'm going to believe in faith that God's going to supply all my needs. That's testing God, not trusting God. Paul was a tent maker. And when he could work, he would work. And apparently there were times that he had more than he needed. He had an abundance. But when you're under house arrest, employment is not an option. Paul is poor, not because he's lazy, 
but because in his own personal conviction, he's chosen not to depend on others to meet his basic needs. And yet he also tells us that that lesson of contentment was equally valid during those seasons of prosperity. Maybe more so. We know this because as middle-class Americans, I don't know that any of us are concerned about how we're going to get food to provide for our next meal, are we? It just is not something that we struggle with. But what we do know is that the more you have, very often the more you think you need, right? In fact, I think it may be more difficult to learn contentment in the presence of abundance than it is in a place of humble means. Either way, Paul says, I have learned to be content no matter what the circumstance may be. The word Paul uses here for contentment is extremely interesting because it is the only time that this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. And not only that, it is a word that is stolen really from from the pagan culture of Stoic philosophy. In fact, one Greek scholar said this, On the surface, Paul's explanation looks like a meteor fallen from the Stoic sky into his epistle. (laughs) In other words, at first glance, this seems really out of place and really out of character for Paul. But I believe he does it purposefully to make a point. Paul plays on the understanding of this Stoic philosophy that viewed contentment as the essence of all virtues. A famous quote from this ancient philosophy makes this point when it says this, Man should be sufficient unto himself for all things, and able by the power of his will to resist the force of circumstance. Paul takes this well-known philosophy and appears to communicate to his readers, I've learned to be content, because like the Stoics, I can make it on my own. That's the way they would have received it. Even when we hear this, it sounds a little harsh, maybe egotistical. When I read it, I thought, Paul must have grown up in West Texas. That's straight from us. I think it caught the Philippian church by surprise. But then he continues. Look at verse 13. He says, I am content in all my circumstances. Why? Because I am can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, this is important. Because when Paul said these words, he turned that Stoic philosophy on its heels. He he turned the table of, of worldly wisdom of these ancient philosophers. You see, they taught adamantly that contentment is based on your strength through independence. Paul says that's not what I've learned. Paul says, I am content, not because of my independence, but because of my complete dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. See, Paul is God-sufficient, not self-sufficient. He has learned that when Jesus Christ is all you need, all you have, Jesus Christ is all you need. When we look at verse 13 in this context, I personally believe it transforms the way this is usually interpreted. 
Very often, this verse is understood as a, as a blanket promise of power. It is what justifies that, that Christians can do anything they set their minds to because God is on their side. But this is not a blessing for indulgence. This is a confession of a man who's learned through the, the good times and the bad times that God is always faithful, always faithful to equip us to be strong in the place that He's called us to serve. In fact, here's what I believe the main point of this passage is intended to be. Paul is teaching us that God is sufficient for us to live abundantly, even in the absence of things we think we need. Did you hear that? Do you believe that? That's what he's telling us. God is sufficient. God is sufficient to help us live abundantly, not just get by, but abundantly, even in the absence of things we think we need. Another way to say that is that we are divinely equipped to go where we are divinely called. Whatever those circumstances may be. Why? Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. When Jesus Christ is all you have, Jesus Christ is all you need. That's a powerful truth, isn't it? It teaches us that contentment is an attitude of those who have learned to trust in the Lord and the faithful provision of His hand. Those who surrender to, to His plan and, and are willing to say, not my will, Father, but Your will be done. And Christian contentment is an attitude of dependence, not independence. A heart of obedience where the fruit of our life is the joy of the Lord because of His faithful provision. God wants us to understand this because It is the path to experiencing the peace that passes understanding that we talked about last time. It is the the path, the, the process by which we know Him, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. See, contentment is the key to conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And personally, I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul's words here follow right on the heels of his discussion about protecting unity. You see, finding sufficiency in the Lord protects me from seeking something from others that is ultimately found in Christ alone. Because many times, the root of disunity comes when we look to someone else to meet a divine need in our life. I have a need for acceptance. And so I work hard to gain your approval. I have a need to be valued, and so I work hard to impress you. But when I depend on you to meet those needs more than I depend on God, I get angry when you don't accept me. I get defensive when you don't agree with me. I become jealous when when I don't get the attention that I think I deserve. Very often, when we have discord in our relationships, it's because we're seeking something from others that ultimately should be found in God alone. Very likely, I believe, Yodia and Syndiki that we learned about last week, they were not in harmony because they were discontent. 
And that discontentment created a contentious spirit. They were expecting something from one another that should have been found in their relationship with God. What a powerful lesson for our relationships with one another, with our spouse, with our employer. Contentment in the Lord says, you don't owe me. It's not your job to meet my needs. And in the same way, what I give to you flows out of an abundance of what I am experiencing in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you tell me, would this not revolutionize the way we relate to each other in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families? I think it would. Four short verses, but packed with some powerful truth. If I could, let me give you a couple things that I would ask you to consider as we take things away from this passage. First of all, care enough to know. Care enough to know. Think about this. If our body, this body of Christ, really cared enough to know, is it at least not at least possible that most people would never have to ask for a need to be met? Is that not at least possible? Can you give me that? If we cared enough to know? Just think how much we might be able to save on postage alone for our missionaries. (laughs) Now, I, I realize that that is an important way for us to communicate. It is a means that we have a privilege to in our society today, and we should take advantage of that. But I think sometimes our convenience becomes an inhibition to a meaningful engagement with people. I really do. We adopt this hands-off approach of just tell me if you need anything and we'll be there. Just let us know. And we sit back and wait. Like Paul with Epaphroditus. Maybe what people need most is you. Another person. Maybe the blessing of seeing you at their door is more important than the gift that you're holding in your hand. The encouragement to know that what matters most to you is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon which you stand striving together with them. Here's something I want you to consider. And I'm just going to throw this out there and ask you to take it before the Lord. Will you at least think about the possibility? of setting aside money for a family vacation, okay? Instead of taking that family vacation to Cancun, go to Mexico City or go to East Asia or go to Kazakhstan with your whole family. Show up at the door of one of our missionaries and then you come back and tell me if that changes your perspective of the joy of the Lord, both for you and for them. Just try it. Just try it. Or maybe we should take a family trip, a church family trip. Maybe we should go to Haiti. Or, or maybe we should just walk over to the other side of our own city. I don't know. But I want to know enough to care. Care enough to know. Let's commit to each other. At least let's ask God. Okay? Can we do that? It's a simple first step. God, what would you desire for yourself, for your family, and for us as a church family? Let's just take that before the Lord and see where 
he might lead us. As we finish up, if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. In this passage, Moses is talking to the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. They've spent time in the wilderness, and he is giving them instruction before they enter into this land. And I want to look at this with you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me read to you, starting in verse 2. And you shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you into the wilderness these 40 years, that you might that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Did you hear what he said in this passage? He said, God let you be hungry, and then he fed you with manna. (laughs) Moses is reminding the people that God purposefully put them in a place where they were dependent upon him. They were hungry because he allowed it to be so, and then he fed them. You remember how each day the Israelites woke up and there was a carpet of bread on the ground outside of their tent. Enough for them to have sustenance for that day alone. But you remember what happened when they were concerned and so they gathered up enough so that they would have enough for the next day? Remember what happened? It spoiled, didn't it? They they, they couldn't do that. They could only learn to eat that which they needed for that day. Why did that happen? Why did God do that? Because God wanted them to learn to depend on Him and His faithfulness to provide. He wanted them to learn the the powerful lesson that life was not dependent upon bread, but upon God. He was teaching them to be content in any circumstance, and that they could do all things through God who daily strengthened them. But look at what Moses goes on to say in verse 7. And hang with me because I want you to get the full breadth of what he's communicating, starting in verse 7. He says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth from valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Let me tell you, this is nothing like the wilderness that they've been in, okay? So they're salivating at the thought of what is in store. He goes on to say, A land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses, And lived in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply. And silver and gold multiply. And all that you have multiplies. Then your heart becomes proud. And you forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. He he led you through the great and terrible wilderness. With its fiery serpents and scorpions. And thirsty ground. Where there was no water. He brought you for you. Out of the rock of water, out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, 
which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that you might, he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, and that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. You know, I think it is much harder, and these, this passage in my mind confirms it, to be content in the presence of abundance when we so easily convince ourselves that my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. We lose our dependence upon God, and we seek our security in the gifts instead of the giver of those gifts. Moses said, God made you hungry, and then he fed you what you needed so that you would trust in him alone. You're about to go into a land of excess, so don't forget the lesson you've learned. We are equally as dependent upon God in our prosperity as we were in our poverty, in our abundance, as well as our suffering need, even when our stomachs are filled as it was when our stomachs were hungry. Moses and Paul have learned, in my mind, the very same lesson. Contentment. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Each of these are examples of the same truth. The truth that God is sufficient to help us live abundantly, even in the absence of things we think we need. For this reason, I think it's healthy to discipline ourselves to go without. (laughs) Try fasting and go without food. Go without media, TV, Game Boy, Xbox, etc., etc. Try to go without that. I think it's healthy to have something that you really want to buy, but choose not to buy it. We live in a land of excess. And so make sure we don't wrongly assume that my power and the strength of my hand have made me this wealth. Perhaps one of the best ways to protect against this is to simplify. To simplify. Oftentimes we lose sight of contentment because life, quite frankly, is entirely too complicated. We're overcommitted and overwhelmed with excess. Discipline yourselves to to simplify and be content with less. This looks different for everyone, so you need to hear me. I'm not telling anyone what they need to do or if they need to do anything at all. But what I am telling you is a reflection of what Paul says, is go before the Lord and ask him. And like we read earlier, if in anything you have an attitude that is not where he wants you to be, if you ask him, he will reveal that to you. But the key to all this is the lesson of contentment. Believing, truly believing that we are divinely equipped to go where we have been divinely called to serve. Whatever circumstance that may be. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. God is sufficient for you and I to live abundantly 
even in the absence of things we think we need. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If Jesus Christ is all you have, I promise you with all my heart, he is all you need. Trust in him. He is faithful. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for this promise. Uh, Admittedly, however, for myself included, um, I don't know that we rest in it very often because uh, we have looked at our own hands and said, look at the, the strength of my hands and the wealth that I've made. But yet, Father, it is a gift from you. Our, our life is daily dependent upon you. I pray that you teach each of us to learn contentment by dependence upon the grace and mercy of the God whom we serve and that we have the courage to go wherever you send us because you are faithful to divinely equip us to the places that you've divinely called us. And Father, help us to be a people who care enough to know that we would not wait to be told, but would instead listen and seek and understand and even consider the possibility of showing up at the door of somebody who's far away to tell them that we care about them and to show them by embracing them in person. Father, we love you and we're grateful for our time. Pray this in your name. Amen.